Okay, so Joshua chapter 8, which is on page 156 of the Red Pew Bibles. quite a shocking passage in a lot of way, particularly in light of what we see on our television screens every night. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you will be on the alert. I and all these men will advance on the city, and when the men come out against us, as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city, for they will say, they are running away from us as they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hands. When you have taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it, you have my orders. Then Joshua sent them off and they went to the place of ambush and lay in wait between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night with the people. Early the next morning, Joshua mustered his men And he and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The entire force that was with him marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai with the valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. They had the soldiers take up their positions. All those in the camp to the north of the city and the ambush to the west of it. That night, Joshua went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in a battle at a certain place overlooking the Arabah. But he did not know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them, and they fled towards the desert. All the men of Ai were called to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out towards Ai the javelin that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out his javelin towards Ai. As soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it and quickly set it on fire. The men of Ai looked back and saw the smoke of the city rising against the sky. 
but they had no chance to escape in any direction, for the Israelites who had been fleeing towards the desert had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that smoke was going up from the city, they turned around and attacked the men of Ai. The men of the ambush also came out of the city against them, so that they were caught in the middle, with Israelites on both sides. Israel cut them down, leaving them neither survivors nor fugitives. But they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the desert where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. 12,000 men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of this city, as the Lord had instructed Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take his body from the tree and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses, which he had written. All Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with their elders, officials and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing those who carried it, the priests, who were Levites. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the aliens who lived among them. Amen. Uh, let's, let's pray. Mm. Father, thank you so much for giving us your word and we pray for your grace now that um, by your spirit that you'd help us to, to understand and to learn and to grow. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm. One of the trends I've noticed in church life, particularly amongst pastors in recent years, is for pastors to become life coaches, uh, leaders who we can go to for coaching in how to fulfil our life's potential in our relationships, in our families, 
in our careers and so on, how to, max, how to minimise our crises and manage our crises in life and how to maximise our, um, our blessings from God. Uh, there is, of course, uh, great wisdom, uh, incredible wisdom from the Bible on all of these matters. And uh, we would hope that our church leaders would be capable of um, understanding the Bible, understanding those life issues, and applying the Bible to uh, those areas of, of life. Actually, I think Peter's a better life coach than me, um, <laughs> uh, in some respects. But uh, the shift towards uh, being a life coach uh, can be a shift away from being a faithful prophet. Because being a faithful prophet means teaching and applying God's word in all of its fullness. And not just the blessings, but also the curses, uh, the warnings about sin, judgment and the need to repent. The faithful prophet knows how to diagnose not just the surface issues, but to diagnose the heart problem, the problem of sin and its effect on our lives and to, to provide God's solution for that in the gospel and the working out of the gospel in life. There is, of course, nothing new under the sun. God's people have always been tempted to focus on the blessings of God and to downplay the responsibilities uh, of living repentantly, living a, an obedient life. Now, the events of the Old Testament are not written just to entertain archaeologists and historians. They're there for our benefit so that we don't have to learn the hard way, as Israel often did. And we saw last week in Joshua chapter 7, Israel learning a very hard lesson because having been victorious over the larger, more powerful city of Jericho in quite a miraculous way, uh, they were easily defeated by the much smaller army of the less significant uh, place of Ai, or Ai, as uh, Joanne was pronouncing that. And they were defeated because of their sin. But by the time we got to the end of chapter 7, we saw that they had dealt with that sin. And it was, of course, the, uh, the sin of, of Achan, uh, the man Achan, which had attracted God's curse upon Israel. They had dealt with that sin. And now if you open up your Bibles at, um, at Joshua chapter 8... In verses 1 and 2, what we see is that uh, things have now changed. In fact, in verses 1 and 2, God says to Joshua that he ought not to be afraid. He ought no longer to be discouraged. And there's a reason for that. The reason is that there is now a fresh start. Things are now right between Israel and God. Uh, because they have repented of their sin, they've dealt with, uh, with uh, Achan and what he had done. And Joshua is now to, to, to go to Ai again and to, uh, and to attack it for a second time. 
And he's to take his whole army, which would have been a very big army. But this time, God would give them victory. Now, if you have a look at those verses, do you notice the big difference between I and Jericho in terms of God's plan? Uh, In verse 2, Israel is allowed to take plunder from the city. And that was uh, the way that God would be providing for them now that they're no longer in the wilderness and receiving the manna and uh, the quail and so on. They were to take plunder from the city, which they were not allowed to do in Jericho. Um, Most probably because Jericho was devoted to the Lord and it was to be a first fruits offering to the Lord, symbolising that the whole of the land that they were taking uh, belonged to the Lord. And that, of course, was the nature of the sin which Achan had committed. Foolish man that he was. What a foolish man. He knew that God had forbidden the taking of plunder, but when he was tempted, when he saw the silver and the gold and that magnificent Babylonian robe in front of him, he thought to himself, you know what? God does not have my best interest in mind. Uh, God doesn't know what's best. I know what's best for me. And that's how he acted. Now, they call that serpent theology. Think about that thought, right? And where that comes from. Serpent theology. What should he have done? He should have trusted God, shouldn't he? He should have trusted God that... that, uh, God is to be obeyed when he says don't take the plunder because God knows our needs, God knew Achan's need and God would provide. God is the provider. And that is what we see uh, here in verse 2 as they are now able to take the plunder from the city of Ai. Now, what would be God's strategy for taking the city of Ai? Um, Just as an aside... There is some debate about exactly where I was located. Um, We know that the two key cities of of Jericho and to the west of Jericho uh, is the city of Bethel. And we know that I would have been located somewhere in between Jericho and Bethel. But archaeologists have been digging at a particular site for a long time. They've thought that that was probably the ancient uh, ruins of of Ai. But what they've discovered is that uh, the ruins that they've had in that place don't date from the period of the conquest of of the land by by Joshua and, uh, and the Israelites, which was either 1400 BC or 1200 BC, around that period of time. And so what happens then is when they've assumed that this is the site of Ai, they've been digging there, they've been excavating and looking at it and so on, and they discover that it couldn't be Ai, well, there are those who will say, well, there you go. That proves it, doesn't it? It's not true. That um, Joshua was just just a made-up story. It's just a part of mythology. There is, however, another possibility. 
Can you think of what that possibility might be? They're digging in the wrong spot. <laughs> They're digging in the wrong spot. And in fact, uh, more recently, another nearby site has been excavated, and that's actually looking far more promising as being the actual ruins of I. You know, around the same period, evidence of a burning that's taken place and so on. Now, most likely I was a smaller outpost kind of town of the much larger city of, of Bethel, and that there was a, a real connection between Bethel and I, as we'll see later on in the text. And in verses uh, 3 through to 23, it also seems that the blowing of trumpets kind of strategy was a bit of a one-off, um, and that uh, from here on, that uh, God would be employing more conventional military strategies. Now, that doesn't make Israel's victor victories any less miraculous. Uh, humanly speaking, they should have beaten I the first time, shouldn't they? But they didn't. Why didn't they? Because God had withdrawn his blessing. God was cursing Israel because of the sin of Achan. Now, the strategy is outlined for us in verses 3 through to 8. I'd, I'd like to read that for us, just to get our heads around that. Verse 3, let's pick it up there. So Joshua and the whole army, so it's a lot of people, moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you be on the alert. I and all of those with me will advance on the city. And when the men come out against us, as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city. For they will say they are running away from us as they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. When you've taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it. You have my orders. Now this is actually the strategy that God had given Joshua a bit earlier on. And uh, it's a simple and effective strategy. It's, it's saying, pretend, we'll pretend to attack them from, um, so uh, Jericho is up here, uh, so Jer Jericho here is, Bethel's here, I's somewhere in the middle. Uh, they're saying, he's saying, I'm, we're going to pretend to attack them from this direction, but you go up and set up an ambush on the other side, in between I and Bethel, you know, a valley there, and uh, we'll pretend to attack them from this direction. They will come out of the city, they will chase after us, we'll run away from them, and when the city is empty of all of the fighting men, you come in from behind and you take the city. Simple and effective strategy. And in verse 19, uh, we're told that the men of Bethel, they saw what was going on and they also joined in the fight. 
and uh, that shows the, the allegiance and the connection between the two cities. It seems in verse 12 that there were, in fact, two ambush units. Uh, there is a second one of only 5,000 men and uh, uh, to add to the other one of 30,000. Some people think that the whole army consisted of 30,000 and it was only one ambush uh, unit of 5,000. But I think the way that the text reads that uh, it's that 30,000 were to be the major ambush unit of a much larger army. And in verse 19, once the ambush unit, units took the city, they quickly set it on fire. Now, imagine that you're one of the soldiers of Ai. Um, you think you've got the Israelites on the run. You're pretty happy about the situation. You're feeling very confident. You're chasing after them. They're running away. And then you look over your shoulder and what do you see? Smoke. And your heart sinks. And you think to yourself, oh my goodness, when you realise what has just happened and the role that you've actually played in that. And the Israelites who were being pursued, they then did a U-turn and they came back and they faced off with the soldiers of Ai and Bethel front on and they attacked them from one side whilst from the other side the soldiers who torched the city have come out of the city and they kind of, there's a pincer movement, they, it's like a, a, a clamp and they, they meet them in the middle and the soldiers of Ai and Bethel have got nowhere to go. And that's what we see in verses 22 and 23. Let me read those for you. In verse 22, the men of the ambush also came out of the city against them so that they were caught in the middle with Israelites on both sides. Israel cut them down, leaving them neither survivors nor fugitives, but they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. Um, that's a strategy that's often employed in military fights. And there's an obvious issue here with uh, Israel's warfare in the Old Testament. And we all know what the issue is, don't we? Uh, the issue is the, the killing of people for no apparent reason other than taking their city and populating their land. And sometimes we feel pretty uncomfortable about that when we uh, think it through. But it's not the case that there is no apparent reason. There actually is a reason. And the scriptures uh, clarify that for us. Uh, in um, Genesis chapter 15, um, God said to Abraham that he wouldn't... Uh, that they wouldn't, his descendants would not occupy the land until the sin of the inhabitants had reached its fullest extent. And we know from chapter 7, verse 7, last week's passage, that the people of Ai are identified racially as being Amorites. In the Old Testament, the Amorites are kind of like the, the standard bearers 
um, for sin. Uh, the, the standard bearers by which the sin of others can be compared. And we see that with respect to a couple of the uh, wicked kings of Israel. Uh, listen to what the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 21 when it uh, speaks about one of Israel's kings, Ahab. This is what it says. It says, There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. There was no one like Ahab. Urged on by Jezebel, his delightful wife, uh, he behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites, the Lord drove out before Israel. They were idolaters. And it's lots of evil that goes with that idolatry. Another king, Manasseh, was said to be even more evil than the Amorites. How about that? So you can see these are the, they're the standard bearers they are for, by which others are judged. Now, it, it doesn't make easy reading. But it's like when God judged the world at the time of the flood. Uh, the evil had grown so much that God wiped out humanity. And now here, what he's dealing, what he's doing is not only is establishing his kingdom, but he's dealing with the sin of the land as Israel conquers the promised land. And he deals with sin, he judges sin, he punishes sin in the same way that he does for Israel when Israel turns her back on the Lord. And the, the climax of that, of course, is in the being expelled from the land, the Babylonian exile and the Assyrian exile. Now, someone rightfully lamented in Bible study group last week that we don't hear much about sin and judgment in churches these days. And um, I'd have to say that it's not all we want to hear in churches about sin and judgment. But unless we grasp the realities of God's holiness, of our sinfulness, and of his judgment, then we won't even come close to experiencing the enormity of God's love and his grace and his kindness. A person came to me recently, a non-Christian person, who was overwhelmed by a sense of guilt for something done in the past and was overwhelmed by a sense of guilt for another thing being done in the present. The person was greatly troubled in conscience, enormously troubled so much so that they went to see a minister. They'd been to others. They'd been to another church. I don't know what was said at the other church. But I do know that others had told this person that there was nothing wrong in what they had done in the past. There was nothing wrong with what they were doing in the present. And that they really needed to learn to love themselves, to feel good about themselves, and just to keep moving on. 
What was described to me was clearly sin, profoundly sin. And when I gently and lovingly affirmed that and spoke about God's holiness and God's judgment for that sin, the person was actually grateful. The person was actually expressing the sense of, of relief. The person was glad that at long last someone was speaking that which they knew in their heart and their conscience to be true of themselves and their lives. It was a <clears throat> significant conversation in which I was then able to um, patiently and clearly explain how God's justice is matched, is more than matched by his love and his grace and his kindness in Jesus. Because, friends, it is said of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that by his wounds that we can be healed, forgiven, restored, reconciled to him forever. And I think that Peter in that passage uses the word tree very deliberately. And as a hint of this, this healing, this this issue in, in Joshua chapter 8. Uh, in verse 29, the king of Ai was, his body was, was hung from a tree. Did you notice that? It was hung from a tree until evening and they brought it down after evening. Now, some would say, and some of the commentators would say, well, you know what, that's just what they did to defeated kings in those days. But there may be more to it. <clears throat> there may be an act of obedience here to the law of God because in the law of Moses, when someone deserved death, their body was to be hung from a tree and to be brought down before sunset, which is exactly what we see in verse 29 here. And in the law of Moses, it says that they are to be considered cursed by God. Cursed is anyone who is hung from a tree. Now, we might feel uncomfortable with what happened to the king of Ai, but he was rightfully cursed by God for his idolatry and idolatry of his people. It's only in that uncomfortableness that he's cursed like that and publicly shown to be cursed by, by that. If we feel the uncomfortableness of that, then we can begin to understand something of the profound love of God who sent his own son, who committed no sin, but was hung from a tree, as 1 Peter says, as he hung on a wooden cross, and in so doing he was cursed by God, but he was cursed in our place. He was cursed for us. 
Let's move on in the passage. Because see, in verses 30 through to 35, I don't know if you noticed this when it was being read, but there's kind of like an abrupt change that takes place. The, the passage takes us quite um, uh, abruptly from, from warfare to worship, uh, from conflict to, to covenant, and we are transported in verse 35 from, from the burnt-out city of Ai to a mountain, or actually to a couple of mountains, probably about 40 kilometres away, depending on the precise location of the city of Ai. And as it says, there's actually two mountains, uh, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And in between those two mountains, there is a place which is called Shechem. Now, does that ring a bell? Have we heard of the place Shechem before? Well, let me tell you this. Hundreds of years earlier, under a tree in Shechem, stood the man Abraham, where in Genesis chapter 12, in that place, God said to him, Abraham, take a look around you. To your offspring, I will give this land. And so Abraham built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Uh, later on in Deuteronomy chapter 11, Moses said to Israel that when, when you go into the land that God will give you to possess, that's where you're to go to. And there proclaim on Mount Gerizim, you are to proclaim God's blessings. And on Mount Ebal, you are to proclaim God's curses. And here they are. Now here in that very spot, the place where God had spoken to Abraham, the place where God had promised Abraham that his descendants would have this land, stand the multitude of Abraham's descendants. An altar is built. Sacrifices are made. Worshipping God as that very promise to Abraham is fulfilled. How about that, eh? Um, archaeologists have done some digging around there as well. Particularly on Mount Ebal, because that's where the altar was built. And the only ruin on Mount, Abel, Mount Ebal, which dates to around the time, to the time of Joshua, is something which looks like an altar, an ancient altar. Now, some of the archaeologists, they actually doubt that it is an altar. Uh, the reason being because they can't find any idols there, any little, you know, little statues. And they say, they say well, maybe it's not an altar because uh, maybe it's the remains of some other construction because Amorites worshipped idols. And if this was an Amorite altar, we would expect to find little figurines and things which they used in their worship. So they conclude that it's possibly not an altar. There is another alternative. Maybe it's an altar which was made by people who worshipped the true God 
and actually didn't need or have idols. Maybe it's an Israelite altar. Defeated by the army of Ai and then winning a victory, Israel had learnt the hard way that the flip side of God's blessing is our obedience. And so therefore, verses 34 to 35 are very, very fitting. Have a look at that. Verse 34. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses. Just as it is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the aliens who lived among them. God's blessing, God's curses, God's word is for all people, not just for the priests, not just for certain classes of Israel, but for men and women, boys and girls, and the others who are not Israelites who had joined up with them, living amongst them. God's blessings and God's curses proclaimed in this valley between these two mountains in the place that Abraham had stood. And that's a sombre message for us as well because there is no such thing as salvation without repentance. There is no such thing as life to its fullest without a life lived in obedience uh, to the living God. The person who says that I know God but doesn't do what God says in 1 John, well, that person deceives themselves and the truth is not in them. It seems to me that we need to be a little bit less like life coaches and a little bit more like, like prophets. Not just the pastors, but each and every one of us. Uh, to be people who are not judgmental, but honest. And loving, because the most loving thing that we can do for someone is to be honest about the issue of sin and judgment and Jesus. Helping people understand God's curse over sin so that they might actually find his true blessing, his richest blessing, every blessing in Christ Jesus. I don't know what happened to that person that I had that gospel conversation with that day. For, very, for important reasons, it actually wasn't appropriate for me to pursue it. Uh, and sometimes you've just got to say what needs to be said, pray for the person and let go, uh, trusting that God will do his work in their lives. Most of the time it's appropriate that we follow through, but not in this particular case. So I don't know. Uh, it might be that that actually bears great fruit in God's timing. We just uh, pray and trust in him in that respect. However, I can tell you another story. I can tell you about Ashley, who many, many years ago <clears throat> came to our church, a broken woman a deeply and profoundly broken woman. 
broken by a life of living on the street, drug addiction, prostitution, dealing with pregnancies, and a very seriously guilty conscience. We spent time with her, and I know Peter and Joe spent a good period of time with, with Ashley. And uh, we're less of like life coaches and more like prophets, uh, helping her to think through her life and think through the issue of sin and judgment and uh, the gospel of Jesus. And uh, she was actually glad. She was glad for the curse of her guilt to be taken by Jesus. And now, uh, we lost contact with her for a while, but uh, now I know that she spends her life in telling others about the true blessings of God, the blessings that are found in Jesus. She's just finished first year of theological college. She's uh, working with Jericho Road and she's working doing what she does best. She goes and visits brothels. And she gets to know women, builds relationships with them and helps them to come out of their sin and enter into life as it is truly to be found in Jesus. She also spends time with people living on the streets. And if you'd like to find out more about her ministry, I'll be happy to tell you and uh, sign you up to receive the prayer letters. Let's be like that, shall we? Let's be prophets, true prophets. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your, your love that's expressed um, even in judgments and, uh, and in your blessings. Father, we thank you for Jesus that he was accursed in our place so that we can receive every blessing that you've got. Father, we uh, want to thank you for the gift of eternal life, that we can live with you in your promised land forever. Help us, Lord God, not to compromise. Help us to be people who don't just want to grab your blessings but not actually submit our lives to you. Help us to be humble, repentant people as we put our trust in Christ. Amen.